0: Once upon a time, welcome to Australian Book Lovers, your destination for
1: imagination. A big
0: 2022 warm welcome to all of our listeners and a huge thank you for joining us for the Australian Book Lovers podcast. Our mission is to bring fabulous Australian and Indigenous literature that spans a whole range of genres to book lovers around the globe, as well as fantastic resources and information for passionate authors looking to write their next bestseller. I'm Veronica Strachan, a.k.a. V.E. Patton, fantasy, memoir and picture book writer, Verita, oh, Verita? voracious reader, try that one, and one of your co-founders and hosts for today, coming to you from Woiwurrung country on Wurundjeri land here in Victoria, part of the Kulin Nation.
2: And I am Darren Kazanko, dystopian science fiction and horror author, avid reader, and one of your co-hosts and co-founders of the Australian Book Lovers podcast and website. Coming to you, as you mentioned, uh, in the fabulous 2022. what we hope to be fabulous, of course, uh, (laughs) but also from the traditional corner country here in South Australia. But, yes, 2022, Veronica, we made it to the new year, which in itself is very uh, worthy of celebration. Um,
0: Look, I think so. And I must say that choosing the word avid rather than voracious was a good idea. (laughs)
2: Less of a tongue twister. It was. Taking the easy way out, I was. (laughs) Uh,
0: But words are powerful, aren't they? So... All good, and yeah, here we are in 2022, and this is in fact our 42nd episode. And as many people who read speculative fiction will know, 42 is in fact the answer to life, the universe, and everything, according to Douglas Adams.
2: Well, I'm not sure if we're going to crack the uh, answers to life, the universe, (laughs) and everything in this episode, but we'll definitely give it a shot. Yes, Uh, we're happy to give it a shot. Yeah, and and of course, it goes without saying, a huge Happy New Year to all of our listeners and I hope everybody had some fantastic time over the Christmas period. I hope there was an opportunity to do some reading or do some writing or just spend time with loved ones, family, friends or even just spend time to yourself and, and treat yourself to a little bit of relaxation and uh, appreciation of the small things in life like a bit of sunshine or... Yeah, walking on the beach, yeah. whatever whatever puts a smile on your face. But welcome to 20,000, 20,000, 2022. Yeah,
0: no, it is 20, 20,000 no. <laughs> Not 20,000 legs under the sea? Or is that
2: 40,000? Oh, uh, well, now you put me on the spot. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm claiming COVID hangover, but uh, <laughs> brain fog, no. Uh, but no, so who knows what adventures and, well, challenges, adventures and all-around all, all around fun times are waiting for us. I know it's been a unique start to the year for everyone here in Australia and probably around the world. Um, but fingers crossed that, that we are moving through the chaos towards some sort of resemblance of victory, shall we say, and maybe a chance mm. to uh, claw back a little bit of what we like to think of as normal life, I suppose. Uh, but you know, as far as a, from a writing perspective, there, it's pretty exciting times. There's a lot of themes and, uh, you know, being a part of history is is a, a unique position to be in, I think, as far as, you know, wherever, you know, whatever place we each of us play in this sort of environment, uh, it can't be denied that we're all pay, playing a part in history. and Yeah, know, contributing
0: so, to content, absolutely. And that is what it's all about, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and and just going through what we hope to look back on as a time that tested us as a human race, and and as uh, as different, you know, tested us as countries and as citizens and as members mm. of society. So, and hopefully we all learn something from it. So, but uh, there I'm we sure go. we will. Yes. Now, well, how about 2022, episode number 42? Yep. Shall we start off proceedings with a little bit of news?
0: That would be fantastic. Yeah. Hey.
2: Here we go.
0: I've got a little bit of uh, news about both readers and writers. I thought I'd try and be, you know, fair and egalitarian as we began. So the first is an article from the Australian Society of Authors who are great advocates uh, and really good support and advice for writers. But they're reporting on the National Reading Survey, which our listeners may remember that we had two special episodes last year called Australia Reads and many of our authors, so many that we had to split it into two episodes, read us a little bit of their story. Well that same organisation Australia Reads has released the results of a national reading survey exploring how Australians read, borrow and buy books. So what I loved is that Australians think it's important to support Australian writers by buying their books. Authors are the key positive influence in a reader's decision to buy a book and recommendations from family and friends remain the number one way for readers to find new books to read. So all good news. Uh, Top reasons that general readers read are pleasure and enjoyment, relax and unwind and to help keep their brain active. The, their, oh, now the other really interesting things to add is that new releases are not essential reading. So people don't mind if a book's been out for a while or if it's a brand new one. So that's a good thing.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good thing. That's always a, a concern, isn't it? There's this uh, sometimes... You know, from a from a writer's you know from an author's perspective, sometimes it's that pressure of feeling like you've got a strike and you've got this small window of opportunity, and then it becomes you know old news, so to speak. And then, with the, but and and from a reader's perspective, it's probably. Feel pressured as well, like bestseller, latest release. But yeah. the beautiful thing about books, sometimes they take, uh, take the embers, take a little bit of little bit, know, of wa- yes. yeah, a bit of what, yes, and bit of before the fire starts yeah. and the word travels, and that's what and then it sparks. Yeah, a good book can take a long time to sort of take fire.
0: This is a little bit of one for authors and readers. The top reasons that both general and engaged readers will buy a book are number one, if it's by an author whose work they've previously read and enjoyed, so authors get out there and write more than one book number two is the personal recommendations from family and friends and importantly uh for authors to remember number three is the description and blurb on the back of the book so if you've got all of those three things happening then you know you're looking good
2: yeah absolutely and 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 friends and family recommendations you can't really beat that yeah yeah
0: no you, you cannot beat it what is your uh if somebody recommended a book to you, uh, would you go, Yeah, yeah, I have to get it? What are the things that influence you purchasing or reading a book?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think, you know, if it's a good friend, then I know that what Their tastes are, and obviously, that you know what they consider good or not, uh, to yeah. a well, that's <laughs> which is also an important thing. Um, yeah. so I know you know, certain friends, if they recommend a good sci fi or, or horror book, then I, I, I got no problems because I know I can trust their judgment, you know, and that's what, yeah. and that's the beautiful thing about having friends that share the common, you know, common loves, like you know, for example, literature, movies, music, uh, yep. you know, uh, so as opposed to. You know, some some random suggestion. I don't know. So it's always going to be. You're always going. To, I'm always going to feel more comfortable. Someone I know and who appreciates that particular genre or art. Yes, or who knows what you be. like. Then of course yeah. I'm going to go. Yep, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll have a good look for sure.
0: Very good. All right. Second, little bit of news is about another ASA survey, but by them this time. In that they conducted the annual member survey to understand how, uh, you know, their members' needs, etc. But they also looked at uh, author earnings. So while, you know, in summary, book sales are strong, author earnings remain precariously low. So you might remember we've talked about and, you know, lots of people quote that most uh, full-time authors in Australia earn less than $15,000. And by most, we mean 81% earn less than $15,000 in the last financial year. And that's kind of on par. What they said is a little bit more alarming is that 58% of the total respondents earned between zero and $1,999. So less than two grand from their creative practice. And look, you can certainly put me in there. Uh and that's an increase from last year, where forty-nine percent earned between naught and and you know just under two thousand. So there are more people earning a pittance. Let's be honest, uh, from their creative practice, but book sales have done. Really well, so then it's you know without getting down to the nitty gritty, you've got to say, okay, is it that people were buying more of the people that they knew? Is it they were, um, you know, booksellers were taking bigger chunks? Who knows? But it's interesting that still authors and creatives in general uh, are struggling to make a
2: buck. It's such a catch twenty two, isn't it? Because you know, for example, let's say television as, as as a sort of platform. Uh, go back twenty twenty years, and uh, if you wanted to, you know, generate sort of advertising income through a program, mm. pretty much guaranteed a good viewership because what did you have? Channel Two, Seven, Ten, Nine, and and SBS. Uh, now, of course, if you've got a program, it could be on how many different platforms? Yes,
0: you know, yeah, from absolutely. from
2: YouTube to Stan to Hulu to you know Netflix to you know Shutter to you know the list is endless. And and same with books. Um, it's never been so democratic when it comes to releasing books. Yeah, but wow, the you know to get a hold of that that audience on the, you know global audience, it's it's a lot of hard work. And it is,
0: yeah. And look, just one more thing to think about in terms of the uh, survey. One thing that the ASA say is that literature. Uh, you know, being highly competitive and sparse uh, in terms of the funding, it received just $4.7 million, or 6% of the Australia Council grants and initiatives investments for 2020 And the grants comprise 13% of the Australia Council's overall investment in the arts. So there's not a whole lot
2: out there. Mm. I'm not going to make any comments. Uh Conspiracy jokes about investments on behalf of local councils. Uh, But, yeah, these are things maybe that we can uh, hopefully see some changes slowly brewing. Yeah, and certainly they're
0: trying to get digital rights for authors and those kind of things. But the best thing that our listeners can do, if you're a writer, write more books. If you're a reader, read more books. All of those things, whether it's through libraries or borrowing or whether you love to have those books on your shelf, um, then that's a good thing.
2: One hundred percent. And yeah. look, at the end of the day, you think about an album or a movie, and even you know some of the big, you know, the big international bestsellers, you hear about them or you see them before you actually experience them. Yes. And so true. now, if I, if I can, so for example, if I can see a poster for a movie down a, a random street down here where I live. You know how many cities around the world have also got those places so the money in the marketing is such a huge expense mm-hmm. uh, to any sort of product that you want to get a return on investment for um, you know but using say for example a movie analogy let's say a budgets 20 million 10 million might be for advertising and marketing yes because how can you see it if you don't know about it and that's something that we can all sort of strive for as, as authors and also as book lovers you know where do you find you know information about you know A genres or styles that you love and B maybe how do you support the Australian. Obviously the Australian Book Lovers podcast, that's exactly one of the things Uh, we try to do. Is is (laughs) highlight and to, you know, slowly build the audience and and of course this year we hope to build our audience even bigger and better. So but yeah, absolutely. It's all a matter, you know, in this digital age where, you know, there's just so much to be found and and such a huge wealth of of data and information and endless websites. Uh, that's the trick, isn't it? To find
0: yeah, a way to reach is. the
2: readers, you know, when it comes yeah. to books. And hopefully we're playing out that little part.
0: So keep recommending your books. Uh, I was really lucky over Christmas and, as, you know, we both have our birthday just before Christmas, but I was able to get a chunk of books for my birthday and for Christmas. So I had a nice couple of stacks. And whenever anybody dropped in to our, where we were staying for a holiday, I go, oh, you have to read this. You know, mm-hmm. this is fantastic or whatever. And it was a broad range. I had some uh, autobiographies about Indigenous women, which was just fantastic daughter River Country. Oh. Of- I'll um, do some audio recordings of my reviews. But, yeah, fantastic. And then read um, Fight Like a Girl by Clementine Ford, which I've been wanting to read for ages. And that was like, oh, so good. I wanted to buy 16 copies and give it to 16 people that I knew, men and women, uh, and young girls even particularly. So keep recommending the things that you love to your family and friends and when you can write a review.
2: Yeah, and and most of all, trust the recommendation if it's someone that, you know, has the same taste as you. Uh, Because otherwise you're missing out on possible absolute treasure.
0: Treasures indeed, yep. All right, one more piece of news and then I'm going to let you have a turn. I thought it was uh, an interesting uh, award, It's it's the National Biography Award because I know that lots of people love to read memoirs and biographies and the National Biography Award is run by the State Library of New South Wales Foundation. Uh, The 2022 submissions are open and what I was really pleased to see was that to be eligible uh, a biography autobiography or memoir have a subject of the work who is Australian or has made a significant contribution to Australia be written in the English language published in book form and consist of a minimum length of 40,000 so that's not a big ask And then, as well as being an in-depth and comprehensive account of a life and a few more little bits and pieces there, be first published between 1st of October 2020 and 30 September 2021, be commercially available within this period, and books may be self-published.
2: Oh, that's always a bonus.
0: Ah. It is a bonus, so I thought that was one definitely worth mentioning. So if you want some uh, more information, uh, head over to the State Library of New South Wales and you can have a look at National Biography Award. And if you've got one of those, enter. And if you don't want to write one or enter one, go to the Australian Book Lovers biography page and look at all the fantastic biographies that we've got there. Such an incredible range.
2: Yeah, 100%. And I'm I'm a, just a mega fan of biographies. Um, I don't know why I switched to nonfiction for over the last few years, whether it be science or. Uh, but biographies are just huge, and there's just mm. something you know profound about, you know, gaining that wisdom or experience from lives you know led completely different to mine. Or like, yeah. I guess that's the joy of for everybody who reads a biography. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's just so much yep. to be gained by so many uh, insights that you find in biographies. So. Yeah, Yeah. I love it. And so keep them coming. Like I said, we've got an amazing list and uh, it's going to be growing bigger and bigger and better and better all this year.
0: Yeah. All right, over to you. What about some local news?
2: Okay, well, speaking of growing bigger and bigger and better and better, I thought I would uh, spotlight a couple of new additions to the website and then a little bit of a spotlight for a book, well, in relation to today's very special guest when it comes to author interviews, Mr. Lachlan Walter. First, uh, I'd like to highlight a, well, something we haven't had too much, but I'm l- hoping we get a lot more, a little bit of a comedic book that's uh, been added to the Australian Book Lovers website, and the book is called Walk Like a Man, brackets, E-A-C, so Walk oh. Like a man, Maniac, <laughs> I'm not sure how you'd want to re- you know pronounce it out loud, but yeah, Walk Like a Man, bracket, iac, and it is by Mr. Jake O'Donnell. Now, it's the story of everyone who became a man in the 21st century. So very, very intriguing there. So I'll read you a little bit of a synopsis. As Jake O'Donnell puts it, if men really are from Mars, then it's no surprise that it is a cold, barren wasteland devoid of life. (laughs) But while modern men still don't know how to let the dogs out, or whether Shaggy did in fact do all of those things, they've at least tried their best, or at the very least been present, in a century that has fought for equal rights while also giving them equal lefts, directly to the chin. Following the journey of a modern man through the seminal first-time moments of his life, Walk Like a man Niack provides an up-close and personal look at the embarrassing, ridiculous, mistake-ridden and underwhelming journey that all boys have to take on their way to becoming a man in the 21st century. As self-deprecating as it is insightful, Walk Like a Maniac or Maniac, I still don't know how you do it with a bracket in there, uh, not only examines the universal experiences that define the modern man, but also explores a hilariously detailed personal account of the journey. After all, what better way to really examine the psyche of a 21st century man than through the eyes of someone who encapsulates everything it means to be one in all its limited glory and shame. So that is go. walk like a maniac. Uh, brackets. Now the story of everyone who became man in the twenty-first century by Mister Jake O'Donnell. That's confined under our Aussie humour and biography because it falls under both. So that's fantastic. Yep. Now com- uh, a complete switch. We've also got a book called Innocent Nurses Abroad by mm. author Jenny Old. Very uh, very intriguing one. This one also. And of course, nurses and all medical staff at the forefront of all of our thoughts at the moment. And huge Absolutely. thank you to, to everybody working in, in any any field that is keeping society functioning. Um, that's a huge effort. So it's good to see some nurses' story coming out. And but this one's a little bit of a look back to times. Perhaps we could say a little bit more innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, so this again. So this is from the best-selling author of a book called Back of Beyond. Uh, so Innocent Nurses Abroad by Jenny Old. So from her childhood in Denelequin to boarding school in Sydney to becoming a reluctant nurse in Melbourne and meeting the Amigos and then venturing forth into the unknown and as, as innocent nurses abroad. Follow Jenny on her magnificent journey around 1960s Europe and beyond on a bus called Dennis. Imagine cooking spaghetti on a sidewalk in Cairns or crossing the Sahara Desert, being questioned by soldiers in East Berlin before the wall fell, dodging the riots in France, Spain, britain and the spreading unrest across europe as it begins to prosper and expand this story tells of living and working in london in the 1960s traveling abroad lasting friendships the social life and of course the love affair how will it end and that is innocent nurses abroad to be found under our biographies and memoirs with the of uh, the, the one and only wombat looking in a mirror
0: Ah, the beautiful wombat.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So very cool. It would be a good opportunity to step back a little bit in time and uh, go to some groovy England stuff and, Mm -hmm. yeah, a little bit of uh, travelling through Europe. So especially for a lot of us who are landlocked at the moment, for want of a better word, um, you know, it's always great to go on these adventures back in time. So, again, that is Innocent Nurses Abroad by Jenny Old. Okay. And then, of course, today we have a very special guest author called... Mr Lachlan Walter Now he has written a book called Kaiju, We Call It Monster The, well, the synopsis for this book We Call It Monster reads a One ordinary day An enormous creature dragged itself out of the ocean And laid waste to a city In the months and years that followed More and more creatures appeared Until not a single country remained untouched At first People tried to fight them In the end, all they could do Was try and stay alive we Call It Monster is a story of forces beyond our control, of immense and impossible creatures that make plain how small we really are. It is the story of our fight for survival and our discovery of that which truly matters, community and compassion, love and family, hope and faith. So We Call It Monster, Malta. Walter, that you can find that under both our horror and our sci-fi genre. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating uh, interview today. It was a huge amount of fun to chat with Lachlan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, preparing a little bit for this uh, podcast amongst uh, looking through a little bit to do with monsters, you know, obviously monsters, you know, have always sort of played either metaphorical, or metaphorically or symbolically, you know, um, substitutes for a lot of our fears or fear of the unknown and stuff. And uh, it made me think of looking through some memes the other day and, and it looked like a Sort of a beautiful sunrise over the ocean, and across the top, it sort of said something like, uh, "You know, here's hoping 2022 that you know is starting to be a better year." You know, and mm-hmm. but then there was a little silhouette in the sun when you have a look, and then the bottom says, "Hang on, is that Godzilla?" <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was, you know, which really fits into you know the the timing of uh, releasing the interview today and and where we're at in January at the time of recording, you know, it, obviously in the midst of you know a pretty catastrophic outbreak of, of the uh, omicron strain which in essence is you know uh, that monster that we have to battle or mm. you know or perhaps we have to learn to live with um i think the difference we that in we call a monster from what I gather is that unlike just a, a normal narrative that go, has a beginning and end it's actually different perspective from different uh, different characters different timelines so essentially how different uh, yeah different circumstances deal with this fact that monsters are coming out and, you know, they can't be killed. So it's really a case of how do we deal with it and all the different ways people learn to live with this threat. And it's really poignant, I suppose. Poignant. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you say that. I don't know how to read it. (laughs) uh, (laughs) At at this time, because that's really what we're seeing at the moment, especially now that, you know, Australia is well and truly facing what the, you know, the virus really is as far as you can catch it and it will make you sick. It's always been somewhat of a hidden monster for a lot of us. I can say that from South Australia, you know, for the last year and a half, two years, it's been something that you know is the boogeyman, but it was never in our daily life. Mm. Uh, and now, of course, bam, here it is. So, it's it, and, and it's interesting to see everybody's different uh, approach, shall we say. So, it's it's, um, it's it's a good idea, I think. You know, if you're into monsters or or perhaps would like to delve into something that. Explores how how different you know people's responses can be to, I guess threats or the fear of the unknown or or, or facing situations beyond your control, mm. and and it's definitely something we're seeing at the moment and we're learning a lot. But uh, yeah, so in to celebrate a little bit of not celebrate the COVID, of course, but to celebrate the fact that we've got Mister Lachlan Walter on this interview today and and his book we call it Monster. I thought I was I, I wanted to know you know what was kind of a rough top 20 or top 10 of monsters in literature so I did find a top 20 okay yeah and this is on uh, literaryactor.com and it's the ranking top 20 literary monsters somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I won't go into the descriptions too much. But yes, at number 20, there is the Jabberwock. Um, yeah. So not something I'm too familiar with, but... Uh, oh, yes, beware the Jabberwock. <laughs> <Yep. laughs> Although Jabberwocky, I did like <laughs> as a kid. C.S. Uh, Lewis, that one. Ah, I'm, thinking, um, I'm thinking Monty Python. No.
0: Uh, oh, yeah, but actually Jabberwocky, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 That's
2: true. Uh, at number 19, um, not a particular one, but old-timey literary ghosts. So, they're the Victorian era ghosts that seem to rattle chains and wander through. So, they're obviously a bit or pretty popular at some points. now, giants. So giants um, always feature a, a big role in monster books or monster stories. For example, Jack and the Beanstalk. Giant squids at number 17. Oh. Now, obviously, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. or there's our answer to our original question. Um, Thank that, you. That, yeah, but I still remember seeing. You know the etchings and the black and white drawings of ships being attacked by giant squids, and yeah. it's and it, all the different images. They're very vivid still today in my mind from when I was a kid, and so yeah, I'm, I love the idea of uh, the, the ocean is still home to many a monster, mm. uh, and so I'm good. I'm glad to see the giant squid on the list there. It's, even if, it's
0: still there, yes. Yeah.
2: Now number sixteen, Dementors. Uh, uh, hmm. That's a I mean, Harry Potter one, I think, yeah. Mm, it says, they're super gross like rotted corpses and they force you to relive your worst memory. I yeah. uh, don't know about that one as far as, yeah, I'm not familiar. Maybe I've written about them didn't even know. Nope. <laughs> Harry Potter, that one. Aha, uh-huh, there you go. Haven't read Harry Potter yet. <laughs> uh, number 15, uh, of course, Haunted and Evil Objects. So that's always been a huge one as far as monsters or, or yeah, scary things in literature. That was always one of my favourite with, People, either people being haunted, or you know, haunted houses, of course, you can't, yeah. go, you can't go wrong with that with a haunted house. Number four, haunted dolls. Yes, of mm-hmm. course, <laughs> they're going to be a big one, much more up your alley. Yeah, yeah I, look, I can't say, I mean, I wasn't a fan too big of Chucky as a movie. I'm trying to think of any books I've read with a haunted doll, to be honest. Uh, not, not too many, I don't think of any. But I know that the uh, the imagery is a little bit off-putting as mm. far as when you see, you know, artwork or or the concept, I suppose. Uh, I guess it's those eyes that seem to look straight at you, but they're lifeless, but uh, haunted <laughs> dolls. <laughs> uh, 13 is Grendel. So I'm, I guess that's from Beowulf, um, mm. but uh, seems to be coming at 13. Number 12, we've got demons in general, which is, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so uh, demons always play a big role when it comes to monsters in literature. Yep. and can often also, you know, sort of highlight the difference of that, that big battle between good and evil too. So demons, I think, definitely play a big role. At number 11, scary clowns. Now, oh. <laughs> I, I would love to know where that actually really began. I mean, obviously the first thing most people think of is Stephen King with it, Pennywise. Um, but I'm sure it must have been some, some sort of uh, concept prior to that. But how does someone... You know, with a happy face, entertaining children become such a symbol of fear <laughs> or or creepiness. Yeah. yeah. So I guess it's that uh, you can't tell the expression behind the makeup. Um, mm. So maybe that's it. But uh, so scary counts at 11. Number 10, witches never go out of style. Witches is always playing a, a big part in literature. Nine, I like this one, animals gone berserk. Ah. So that's uh, really cool. And I guess that uh, is, we call it monsters a little bit. You know, if you class the monsters that are similar to Godzilla as animals, but mm-hmm. I like the, on the website they have a little uh, picture for this one to give you an example. And the books called "Crabs: The Human Sacrifice." <laughs> uh, uh, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, number eight, uh, we have aliens, of course. Who hasn't? Who still doesn't love aliens? It's yes. Books about aliens and all different types of aliens: friendly aliens, scary aliens, intriguing aliens, mysterious aliens. Uh, they're always good number seven medusa as far mm-hmm. as of characters concerned. Um, yeah that one there's also very vivid imagery and story there number six we've got in general evil kids now that's always uh, a good trope to uh, add to your books and they have you know obviously pet cemetery as a uh, representation of that but evil kids i remember reading you know like the latchkey children
1: Back in the mm. early
2: 80s. That was a great book and with kids sort of going bad. But, uh, yeah, they always can put a little bit of suspenseful edge to your story. Number five, we've got vampires. So, of course, vampires. Perennial faves, yep. Def- definitely not going out of style there. Uh, they're going to be around for a long time and will always spice up any story. Number four, it just lists as local legends. So, for example, the Headless Horseman from the legend Sleepy Hollow. Um, that might be something interesting to look into one day, like le- local... Uh, not scary, but maybe just local legends, mysterious, or haunting, uh, Australian-wide, Australian-based. Yeah, uh, look,
0: absolutely, because we have the bunyip, of course, uh, and Aboriginal myth has got a – there's a body of a human head of a snake and suckers of an octopus. That's what made me think of um, when you mentioned the the octopus before. So every culture – has its myths about monsters. Mm -hmm,
2: mm, Absolutely. Yeah, and I think we'll definitely have to explore that a little bit further in in a future episode. But at number three, here is a good old classic, Mr Hyde. He needs no introduction. I think we all know him. Number two, which I actually thought would be number one, but at number two, we've got Zombies. (laughs) No. Oh. <laughs> so is zombies always a uh, good value uh, for money yeah. <laughs> so, in, a, in a good monster book? Uh, and, of, and now number one, what would you guess as the number well, one Well, Yeah, see, I, I
0: think you've left me zombies. I don't know. What would you say?
2: Well, you, you kick yourself in here because it's obvious, but it's Frankenstein. Oh, well. Yeah. yeah. So a bit of an eclectic list. Yeah.
0: should have thought about my boundaries there.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, but, it, but it's a good little snapshot of how many elements that sort of uh, can be counted as or classed as monsters or that uh, symbolic fear of the unknown that in literature and uh, wow there's just there's so many ways to approach it isn't there?
0: Yeah look absolutely and thinking about some of the the cultural ones as well in Hawaiian myth there's a human with a shark mouth in the middle of its back. South America there's a weir jaguar as in W-E-R-E. Native American myth have Flying heads, human devouring eagles, predatory owl men, water cannibals, horned snakes, giant turtles, monster bats, and even a human eating leech as large as a house. Oh. Gross. That's. Uh, I mentioned about the Aboriginal myth, but also in Greek myth, um, there's uh, Polyphemus, who's a one eyed cannibal giant. There's a couple of your top 20 in there. The Minotaur, which is, again, Ah, in your top 20, the The human-bull hybrid that consumes sacrificial victims in the bowels of the subterranean labyrinth. Uh, And you've got Scylla, the six- Headed serpent, that's a you know, say that quickly. Scylla, the six headed serpent.
2: I was still trying to get over trying to work out poignant. <laughs> I'm not going to swallow your G's there.
0: <laughs> So, Scylla wears a belt of dogs' heads, ravenously, ravenously braying for meat. Um, yeah, look, uh, African myth, giant predatory bird, oh, all those kind of things. We could easily have spent days researching this, you know, why we're fascinated and intrigued by monsters and scary things. So it's just, we talked a little bit about uh, monsters as metaphor and the devil in disguise and Keiju or Japanese monsters, you know, that thing, Godzilla and all those ones that I know uh, you have a a chat about later. Um, It it is just fascinating. There's a, a really nice little quote from china now i'm going to say his name incorrectly uh miaville miaville um he wrote uh station which is really complex fantastic speculative fiction book monster derives from the latin word monstrum which in turn derives from the root *monere*, meaning to warn to be a monster is to be an omen the monster is more in an odious creature, of the imagination kind of cultural category. So that's Stephen T. Asma has a book called On Monsters. Uh, mm, but that's the interesting, China so being yeah. a
2: warning, a, a representat- representing, sorry, a warning. Yeah, uh, is is it a sort of a uh, a reflection on on our fears, and so a warning or a or yeah, and like omen a,
0: and an omen to make us yeah. look,
2: at, you know, to come, you know, to deal with certain issues.
0: So. This is a the quote that I really enjoyed, was epochs throw up monsters they need. So history can be written of monsters and in them, and I think that's perhaps a little bit where Lachlan was going. We experienced the conjunctions of certain werewolves and crisis-nord feudalism of Cthulhu and rupturing modernity of Frankensteins and Moreau's made-things and a variability troubled enlightenment of vampires and tediously everything of zombies and mummies and aliens and golems and robots and clockwork constructs and their own anxieties and we pass also through the endless shifts of such monstrous germs and antigens into new wounds and i thought ah oh, that's so much in that was yeah really fascinating
2: definitely a lot to unwrap or un- yeah. unravel there yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, when it comes to, when you said warnings, but um, it's easy to focus on the monsters. But I think the beautiful thing is in this instance with Lachlan's work, it's more about uh, human beings and, uh, you know, characters and the relationship that they have uh, with each other trying to deal with the monsters. So the monsters, I guess, similar to that uh, quote or definition you were talking about before, they represent more of an omen. Mm. And and also, therefore, they represent that opportunity for us as human beings to confront or deal with certain things. So, Yeah. So zombies
0: being, you know, uh, capitalism gone awry is usually, you know, all those kind of things. So, uh,
2: yeah. Yeah, zombies are good um, for gore effects and stuff. But I've always wondered, (laughs) I don't don't quite get the I mean, I love zombies, don't get me wrong. I like like the (laughs) fast-moving ones. Um, But Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's just really... The dead come. Yeah, I don't know. They, I, they, they, what's, I don't understand their purpose. <laughs> is it, are they so, Well, this is <laughs> you know
0: what this article is saying is that basically they present uh, represent capitalism uh, gone mad. So uh, you know they show us that. Um, Workers are so alienated from their labour they become nothing more than shambling undead slaves. So I thought, oh, yeah, I can see that. Um, You know, this article also talks about, you know, vampires and the Japanese monsters. So, you know, uh, Japanese monster which, what is it, strange creature, Uh, Keiju, and I probably sent that wrong. We need Yuki to correct us on our pronunciation there. But that, uh, you know, Godzilla being about, the nuclear hubris uh, mm, and meddling of man yeah the meddling of man so you know uh vampires and zombies being symbolic but again china mealville says the literalism of fantastic rather than its reduction to allegory so metaphor is inevitable but it escapes our intent so should we should relax about it and i like this because i tend to get just deep into what's on the page and it sometimes the allegory or the metaphor or whatever I completely miss it because I'm so stuck in the action or the description or the relationship uh, of what's happening it's not until I think about it later or somebody else goes oh you realize that's a metaphor for x I go oh mm. oh is it <laughs> because I love the creativity of it so you know I like the fact that they say you know don't get too worried about it enjoy Um, you know, the literalism of being fantastic. So
2: be scared, be
0: entertained. Climb through the trees,
2: climb on the branches and rustle on the leaves on the bottom door about (laughs) the shape of the canopy from the view above. You can look at that later. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes.
0: Stand in the darkened bathroom and say, bloody Mary, three times. That's, you know, away you go. Oh, okay. What's that one do? (laughs) Oh, that's supposed to uh, bring or summon the spirit of, Bloody Mary who was a young woman girl who was killed but she then kills you or something it's often in those um, teenage movies I was reminded of it because I was watching a new Netflix Stan thing about the tourist and uh, one of the the women there was her partner who needs a good Kick him out. He was saying that she wasn't even brave enough to say Bloody Mary three times in the bathroom, so she did. Of course, being a you know a big supernatural fan, where the lads have uh, you know coped with uh, Bloody Mary coming out several times and they have to smash mirrors, etc. You know, I was very familiar with that.
2: <laughs> yeah, because I think the Candyman is similar. Isn't it? You say Candyman ah. or something, and the Candyman comes. Uh, right. But, yeah, mm. but but thinking of that zombies and capitalism, I've got mm. this. Uh, image in my head now of uh, zombies staggering towards Harvey Norman looking for rat tests. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's true dystopian horror. <laughs> in, yeah,
0: and look, I just had to look up Jabberwocky because I really did like I used to be able to read the whole thing, but I remember that the first bit. "'Twas brillig and the slithy toes did gyre and gimble in the wabe, all mimsy were the borough groves and the moan wrath's outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. So there you go. But, you know, there's more, but I just, twas brilliant the slithy toes did to gyre and gimble in the way. How could you not love that? I mean, that's always a poem by Lewis Carroll.
2: Yeah, um, not only that, it was almost musical, wasn't it? The, oh, the, yeah, the, it's just, the rhythm and the words yeah. go together. Yeah. I love it. And speaking of monsters, you know, the irony is, you know, to, to read about monsters and, and, and you know, obviously dive into that rabbit hole. Uh, just at the end of the street the other day, the uh, our beach was evacuated because of uh, a big shark in the water. And there is Ooh, the monster. That's a real monster. And that's a real monster, yeah. yeah. So it's funny. We've got uh, literal monsters and, yeah, and then uh, obviously uh, our literary monsters. So there's room for them all. I say yes. the more monsters, the merrier. Indeed Sorry. But shall we jump into the interview with uh, Mr Lachlan Walter?
0: Absolutely Let's hear what Lachlan has to say okay. about monsters
2: Okay, excellent So strap yourselves in, ladies and gentlemen Book lovers and uh, excellent, excellent listeners to the Australian Book Lovers Podcast uh, For a awesome interview with author Lachlan Walter Here we go <laughs> okay everybody welcome to another fantastic interview for the australian book lovers podcast and very excited about today's guest now the best way i can introduce this fantastic gentleman is perhaps uh read a little bit of a description that he himself used to describe his uh well describe himself and that is i'm a writer and nursery hand Once upon a time, I was a musician and a cook. I'm a country boy living in the city, a working class intellectual, a cynical optimist, a doctor of literature who avoids academia, an outdoorsy bookworm, a highly motivated daydreamer, a lover, not a fighter, a hippie who eschews dreadlocks, tribal chick, drum circle and, sorry, drum circles and earnestness. Mr. Lachlan Walter, thank you so much for joining us for the Australian Book Glovers podcast. How are you?
1: I'm very good, Darren, and thank you for having me on here.
2: Absolute pleasure. And it's going to be a super fun episode because got lots to talk about, lots of uh, very, very cool questions I want to ask you. Uh, But first of all, a hippie who doesn't like dreadlocks, troll chick, drum circles, how does that work? Um, Yeah,
1: it's it's a a complicated one. Um, I've always been interested in alternative lifestyles. Uh, So for myself, my entire life, my guiding philosophy has been one of i suppose hippiedom which is my own time is the most precious thing i can think of uh and time with my loved ones so i would rather be a little bit broke most of the time than slog it out five days in a row at a job that i either love or hate but that sucks up all of the energy that i have uh and so that kind of I guess that I consider to be a reasonably hippie kind of philosophy. Um, I'm not a very materialistic person because of that kind of way of living. And again, I'd say that's a pretty big hippie philosophy. I'm a vegetarian. I believe in, you know, kind of peace and love and all of those hippie cliches, but I'm not, I'm not a cool guy. I'm not a, I'm not a dreadlock person. I'm not, um, I've never kind of been into the look of something i'm more into the kind of philosophy behind it so if that sort of explains it i guess i mean it makes me yeah no i think it does absolutely yeah
2: Yeah. i think you know you're experiencing it you're loving it and rather than you know adopting it and promoting it or, or advertising it so to speak yeah i mean i don't have anything against
1: the look and the kind of rituals that go along with it they're just not really for me the philosophy is what grabs me I yeah. a lot of '60s rock, and that's probably what
2: got me into it in the first place. Oh, there you go. Yeah, no, I think it's a fantastic uh, ch- lifestyle choice, and like you said, it's uh, you know to make you, you, you know, the, the people close to you in your life a priority. I think really is is f- your very first fundamental in in getting happiness, because then you you're sharing in happiness, and obviously your own happiness, and you're you're creating happiness to those uh, you know beautiful people around you that you care so much about. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Although, yeah, everyone, I'm sorry, i
1: have just cut you off.
2: Oh, no, 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 by all means. But I, I just wanted to have a laugh and say I did have dreadlocks once upon a time when I was 18 and it definitely was a statement as opposed to yeah. a lifestyle, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I've and I have, uh, I've watched a few drum uh, fire twirling circles on the Gold yeah. Coast, but, but yeah, no, the lifestyle is great. But it's interesting what you said said about the five days, you know, working for a job that you either love or hate, but nonetheless it takes away that time and, and stuff uh, because, you know, the in the media at the moment, there's that sort of rumbling of wanting people to no longer stop working from home and head back in the office, and I think it's we're at this unique stage in history where people go, well, why? Yeah,
1: yeah. It, exactly. it's,
2: it's been working, and uh, you know, rediscover maybe priorities are shifting. Who knows? Yeah.
1: Well, they could be. I mean, there's a there's a there's a fine line there because if you are if you're working for someone else from home, your time still isn't as much yourself. And that division between your working life and your home life can become very blurred. And that's a real issue that people are having nowadays, where their boss expects to be able to contact them 24 hours a day. And your phone is always pinging, telling you that, you know, you've got an appointment coming up. You've got a reminder about this. Um, But at the same time, you still have the freedom because you're not commuting and, and you know, you can do a zoom meeting in your undies if you want.
2: This is true. But uh, just for our listeners out there, I can confirm neither myself nor Lachlan are currently sitting in our undies.
1: Yeah, it's, it's cold <laughs> down here in Melbourne at the moment, so um, just, just in your undies isn't great. Yeah. Um, whereas if you have the time purely to yourself to do what you love and to be with the people you love, you don't necessarily have that internal conflict where you know, you're still working, but you're not working and you're living in a grey area. My life is very separate. My work life and my, I guess, artistic, personal life. I can keep with an incredible amount of separation and just be a little bit broke all the time, but that's
2: okay. <laughs> well, that's true. Yes. You know, not, all, not everything comes with a price tag or not all good things come with a price tag. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I think it's all about balance. Um, you hmm. know, I've, I've tried to avoid uh, taking on roles now where, you know, travel time is, you know, I mean, it's a first world problem, isn't it? But uh, you know, if I can avoid 10 to 15 hours a week of commuting, that's a, that's a hell of a big chunk of your life. You can sort of get back and enjoy as uh, you know, being active time you can
1: do anything with. Really.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, but now nonetheless, what is important right now is speaking of, you know, balancing things of conflict is I want to talk to you about your brand new release. We call it monster.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So,
2: you know, what better segue than talk about you know, the, the, the wanting to be around the people we love and, you know, look for those things that are important in life. And then a monster book, which I understand is rather than a traditional monster book, it is about human relationships and, you know, how it's, it's almost a philosophical uh, musing on monsters. Would that be right? I haven't had the opportunity to read it yet, but it yeah. does sound as though it's you did call it a more human approach.
1: Yeah, well so i can i can sort of preface i'll I'll preface it a little bit with a bit of background for the book
2: oh please do that would be fantastic
1: because that sort of that will give context to this philosophical because that's exactly the way to describe it is a philosophical approach to monsters um so i've always been a monster fan ever since i was a little kid i think like a lot of little kids i love dinosaurs and i was a bit of a nerdy shy child so i retreated into you know fantasy worlds like a lot of nerdy shy kids did which um, i still
2: do yeah and which, <laughs> which we still <saw> <laughs> enjoy yeah.
1: being you know a science fiction fantasy speculative fiction buff um but one that particularly got to me i remember seeing one of the early black and white godzilla movies when i was about seven years old and i just fell in love i fell in love with the whole concept of this enormous thing that you can't really explain, and they don't even bother trying to explain it in a lot of movies in terms of how it came about, the science, it's mm. all hand wavy, pseudoscience stuff. And it's more about what this evokes in us, what this feeling evokes in us. And that love has stayed with me forever. And when it came time to writing my second book, I, uh, I get a bit obsessive. So, I was looking for a new project and I'd been slowly dipping my toes in what was out there in terms of monster fiction. And it's a very limited field. Uh, you'll get kind of wham bam action books, mm-hmm. which are kind of just like shoot 'em ups, basically set against giant monsters rather than shoot 'em up aliens or shoot 'em up bad guys or whatnot and the like. And then you get these kind of fun postmodern takes. There's a book called, I'm just trying to spot it on my shelf because I'm in my book room. It's called Gojiro, written by, written by, I'm just going to waffle on here while I find the title.
2: That's okay.
1: Uh, Best room
2: to be in of all is the book room. It's a, it's a fun
1: <laughs> room, uh, written by a guy named Mark Jacobson. Yeah. And it's um it's the story of Godzilla from the point of view of Godzilla.
2: Oh, okay. That's talking a, about... Uh, um, oh, wow.
1: Yeah, it's it's very odd. It's very, very odd. There's another great one called Shambling Towards Hiroshima, in which um, kind of the American... And the, the Americans and the Allies in the Second World War create giant monsters, this psychological weapon against the Japanese. Uh, and that inspires the story of Godzilla. And so there's this kind of stuff out there as well. that's a bit wacky and more leans towards the humorous side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but what I never found, and I still have only found very few, is books that take giant monsters as seriously as the films that spawned them. Mm. Um, you know, if you look at the original Godzilla film, it's a metaphor for atomic weaponry. Uh, the original King Kong is, acts as a metaphor for colonialism. Uh, You know, things like Them and Tarantula and all the 50s big bug movies are about the emergence of not atomic weaponry, but atomic power and so on and so on and so on. Films, they might be a bit cheesy and the effects might be a bit lame, but there's a real tone of seriousness in there using the metaphorical potential of these monsters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I wanted that book. I wanted that book to be out there and I just couldn't find it. And so when i needed a new project i thought well okay i'm going to try and write a serious giant monster book that you know does what the films do rather than just you know everything else that's out there
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh well done um you, you know you, you mentioned that uh, how the monsters you know especially in visual mediums have been used as metaphors for different themes or or, or different you know realities for example the atomic bomb or, or at least atomic energy and scientific exploration of of the atomic energy But when it comes to um, monsters in general, uh, so and especially in in this instance, say, uh, about a relationship between or our relationship with the concept of monsters and and the relationships amongst ourselves, knowing that monsters exist, the relationship we tend to have with monsters in popular entertainment, um, for me for, personally, uh, it sometimes feels like it's a, I, I guess, like somewhat a smoky and uh, uh, maybe smeared reflection of maybe how we see an inner, maybe uh, a, animal, potentially dangerous within ourselves that yep. maybe we want to yeah, don't want to. So I'm wondering, when it comes to monsters for you, uh, what do you feel they are symbolically? What's, you know, what's the most heavy sort of. Ins- symbolism that a monster carries for you and has it changed since you know that seven-year-old you who fell in love with monsters to what how you interpret or what you feel about monsters today
1: I I guess my the main interpretation that I take of them kind of shifts over time Um, especially for the monsters of the giant kind I see them constantly being recycled as reflections of what's happening to kind of human race throughout history and so for me i've never really ascribed one specific reading to them but Mm -hmm. more seeing them as representations of what people are facing at different points in history i mean nowadays i think with you know climate change and the potential the potential devastation that we're going to be facing being one of the big big challenges of our lives i see monsters and some monster films and stuff coming out nowadays as a reflection of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess that's what I've really loved about them is that it is a constant, they're a constantly shifting metaphor. Uh, they're not, you know, f- say Frankenstein's monster, for example, always has a certain interpretation ascribed to it. And it can be varied and it can be approached from different angles, but it's always about hubris and humility. Whereas monsters, I just see this ever-shifting interpretation that we can ascribe to them. And that brings, that brings me a lot of joy and really just continually fascinates me because they're not fixed in one time.
2: No, and, and I think, you know, I'm no expert on monsters by any means. Um, I've seen a lot of, you know, cool monster movies, though. Yeah. One thing that strikes me is, you know, most of the time, that I've come across anyway, of course, um, the monsters, you know, they're, they're monsters, obviously, but they're natural in the sense of there's nothing inherently evil. They're not coming to just attack. A lot of times they're just, you know, a monster out of the element or they've been disturbed or, you know, maybe the the lands that they once uh, called home have been taken over. And so it's more of a confrontation rather than, you know, some sort of uh, evil element coming to us.
1: Exactly. And, uh, exactly. And it's it's like they're bigger than us because they're, they're um, so far removed from us and that they they don't have an intention. Um, they are just a, a creature doing what it does and doing what it's supposed to do. Um, and we we are unfortunately in the way, I, so, I suppose.
2: Yeah, to a certain degree. I was just thinking then, it's a bit like, you know, here I am in South Australia, so one fear I have of monsters is, of course, the great white, which is, you know, as real a monster as you can get. Of course. Yes. When I'm surfing, but you know, th- at the end of the day, they're just doing their thing. They're not they're not waking up or well, yeah, or, you know, think, right, that's it, we're going for a human today. However, yeah, exactly. try and put try and put one in your bathtub and see how long before it starts getting really cranky.
1: Yes, okay. exactly. Yes. So yeah. I think it's kind of isn't it? It's about moving them from place to place and changing the perspective.
2: Yeah, yeah, and then therefore I think it's uh, yeah a lot of more soft stuff, stuff. Exactly what like you mentioned earlier. It's more of a explore. It, it then opens up more of an exploration into who we are as a race. You know, how do we yeah. treat animals and yeah, you know,
1: yeah, exactly. Do exactly. we come together, we our own fears and our own feelings and our own fear. Well, not just I've said fears. Our own kind of um, apprehensions onto them, whereas they're just them.
2: That that's right, yeah, yeah. So it would be it would be fun to be a monster for a day, though, just to, to wreck a few cities, empty city yeah. buildings, of course. Yeah, yeah, that exactly. <laughs> <Exactly>. fun. Yeah, <laughs> it should have
1: been a monster last year when we were in lockdown, and
2: yes, you know, perfect opportunity. Yeah. Now we call it monster is uh, has been described, or you describe it as a novel in stories, and with each chapter being told from a different character perspective. I was just curious, Lachlan, what inspired you to approach the book in, in that particular kind of way?
1: Um, okay, so there are yeah, there are two inspirations um, which are kind of, I guess, fold into one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a really, really big fan of World War Z by Max Brooks. I don't know if you know the book.
2: Oh, I know the book. Haven't read it, but I do know the book, yes.
1: Um, the, it's... It, is a, it, it, it works a little bit like We Call It Monster, in, except that it's a series of interviews that cover a time span of about 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that technique that Max Brooks hit upon with that, I find absolutely fascinating in telling a really, really long-spanning story, a story with an incredibly long time frame, without having this kind of... Slightly disappointing narrative coincidence in which a certain character is living through every single momentous event around the world just by chance. Mm. Um, that's not that's not how life works to me. Um, you know, I'm sure some people have incredible jet-setting lives where everything is incredible and everything is extraordinary, and they're witnessing firsthand all of these life-changing things. But for your regular person you live your life and you 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 witness probably 90% of history at a, at a remove. Yeah, you good know, point, yeah. You know, you might live through, we're, we're all living through history at the moment with corona, but, you know, not many of us were there, say, at 9-11 or at the fall of the Berlin Wall. We see these things from a distance. And so I wanted to be able to tell the story, like we call it monster covers 50 to 60 years of time
2: okay that was that was going to be one of my questions right
1: um it's something like that because i wanted to basically detail monsters emerge and then we live through their span they change life as we know it completely they change the world as we know it and then we come out the other side and so for that to happen that has to be in my mind that that's that's not going to be just a very quick process you know not nothing happens that quickly we know that through history And so I wanted to be able to show this without, like I said, having this kind of disappointing narrative coincidence where one character happens to be there at the start and be there at the end and can tell the whole story in flashback. Um, So Mm -hmm. what I ended up doing is each event that happens and some of them are pretty, like I've got to say, some of them are pretty minor events that reveal the story and detail, you know, our reactions to monsters, if they would have happened, happened upon us. Um, but in minor ways where, you know, there's not an earth-changing event. Um, It's just we're there in this new shaped world. So basically I came up with the technique of each character in each successive chapter sort of knows the character from the chapter before. Oh, okay. Either either in passing or they're a family member or they're a friend. And so you have this run-on chain where you can link the characters in the very last chapter all the way back. You can follow the links to the first chapter. So you do have a kind of narrative through line, but you know, it's very coincidental. It's that idea of degrees of separation that is so famous in culture nowadays. Mm -hmm. Um, but these people don't necessarily know that they're connected and that way I could do I thought, I think I could do the story justice without it devolving, you know, just a bit of, you know, cheatery, I suppose.
2: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And uh, compared to, for example, say your traditional style of writing, where it, it is one or two characters sort of central to the uh, and everything revolving around that character or characters, do you, did you find it a little bit more liberating, or did you oh. find it just something you know a, a very unique and, and different approach that you may try again in the future, but not necessarily always adopt? Or
1: um, I absolutely loved the process um, because it was very freeing. You, I mean, I, I had to do a certain amount of plotting so that I could know what was going to happen as the, as the story progressed, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, monsters appear here. What happens after they first appear? Do we just straight away try and destroy them? Do we, you know, try and do we clean up after it and just try and get on with our lives, etc., etc.? et cetera. So knock on so that I could know where the story was going. Once I kind of knew what each chapter would vaguely be about, I could just write whichever chapter I felt like writing at that time. So I actually wrote the entire book out of sequence. Um, Oh, okay. And I mean, some, you know, I might have written, there are some, I think I wrote three chapters in in their their sequence as I got kind of really excited about where it was going in that flow. But it didn't, it wasn't like a standard straight narrative where your continuity is everything. The continuity was just this happened in the past. So you've got to kind of reflect on it, and you've got to establish that that happened then, and something else is happening now, and that that that's really fun.
2: <laughs> yeah, it does sound fun because in my head I'm visualising. It's almost like you know you mentioned it, it's what 50 to 70 years covering. Hmm. Um, so as as far as a you know a, a road map or a story map, it's, it sounds pretty damn fascinating because in a, in a sense you can zoom out, pick a spot in the time, then zoom in and and just you know reflect on one aspect of that whole map for a section, then zoom out and go, let's go over here and zoom in. And yeah, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. Um, Now, because it is, such a non-linear approach as far as you know it well not not, not linear sp- specifically but you, you just mentioned you didn't write it in sequence yeah uh, but as far as working on we call it monster w- were you working on it the whole way through or was it something where you know you, you mentioned you did three in pretty much in a row but did you do sort of like one chapter then work on something else and- yeah basically i
1: i i wouldn't split my time between one chapter and a, and a different chapter um, I, you know, so I wouldn't half finish a chapter and then go and start a second chapter. I would always make sure I'd finish each chapter to a point where you know, I get it to a second draft kind of worthy level. Mm-hmm. And then I would move on. Um, because even though they are quite distinct, and I could do this out of order, there were still continuity issues that arose as the book slowly took shape. And so I didn't want to kind of start too much stuff and then have to fluff around here and fluff around there and change this and change that until, you know, it, it went through basically its kind of final edit. Yeah. So, the, yeah, it was it was very much like each chapter was a labour of love and then I just had to make sure they worked with the others. But yeah. there were too many ideas in my head to kind of start multiple chapters and I'm not very good at multitasking, so...
2: Well, when you're writing about monsters, I think you definitely got to have all your uh, all your attention to the page that at hand. Definitely yeah. something uh, that destructive running through running through your pages. But yeah. I, when it comes to when you were working on, uh, we call it monster. Now, you know, you mentioned about the sort of the metaphors and the symbolism. But I'm I'm just curious. By the time you got through the process and and got you know had all the chapters finished, were there any themes that emerged? That, that surprised you, that perhaps you weren't intending or, or weren't even aware of on a conscious level? And w- yeah, was there any sort of philosophy or, or yeah, things um, that sort of went, wow, I didn't expect that to come out?
1: Yeah, no, it's a, that's a great question. Thank you. Because there is something that came out of it which this also was something that other people have remarked upon with my first book, um, which I, again, was kind of subconsciously and sometimes very slightly consciously uh, aware of it wasn't what I intended in the book. Um, is I'm a big believer in kind of hope and the inherent goodness of people. I'm quite cynical about people and how they behave and how they'll be, but I'd lo- I do believe that you know we're going to be good to people. Um, and this is something that I think came out in We Call It Monster, and also came out in my first book, is. The opposite of what we tend to think of with post-apocalyptic fiction and these kind of world-changing events, which is that society collapses and it's every man and woman for themselves. Um, I like to think that we would actually pull together and that we would help each other and that it would focus us on what really matters, which is our friends, our families, our communities, the people Mm. we love and the people we care about rather than just kind of throwing that all out the window as soon as the first big disaster happens and we've all become Mad Maxian, ax wielding cannibal people that, you know, basically have no morals left.
2: Yeah, you know, scaring for toilet paper. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know? And, I mean, I do, I, find, I have found that through living, you know, as we've all been living through the corona thing, that this is actually something that, we are seeing in society. We are seeing, I mean, we're seeing the outliers and we're seeing, you know, some elements of society that are only out for themselves, but we're seeing this massive pull together of people looking out for each other and looking after Mm. each other. People Mm. who have met their neighbours for the very first time and become friends and, you know, all those great scenes that we saw coming out of Europe of people singing from their balconies and, banging pots and pans and just sort of celebrating that, you know, we're here and we're here to help you. Um, and I guess that's what came out of the book. And that's what some reviewers have and some people that have read it have mentioned. And again, it wasn't something that I kind of intended. It was just something that I guess bled into the book through my opinion about what people will be like.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, interesting um when now obviously I, I, the last thing i want you to do is reveal any twist plots or, or, or any of the surprises but no, I'm, just, I'm, I'm,
1: I'm okay with that
2: yep. yeah but i'm just curious um so th- because there is more than one monster in the in the book how did you come up with the with the monsters is there are they all linked in any way these monsters or is it just a case that um monsters in general just begin to appear and 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 do you have a favorite monster because I know there's going to be some great monster lovers out there and they're going to be going, yeah, how many monsters? What sort of monsters?
1: Yeah, yeah, fair enough. No, um, yeah, I, I toyed around with the idea for a little while of, like, should there be an explanation um, and should there be a reason for them appearing? Um, but I, I ended up not, you know, there are vague hints and stuff to, that I put in there to sort of stimulate the reader's imagination as to why, where they're coming from and why they're here. But I really just wanted them to just be there to suddenly they appear and we don't know why, we don't know where they've come from. We don't really know what they are and we're just, we're just dealing with it. Um, because to me, you know, a lot of the explanations about in, in classic, I can't say classic monster literature because it is a genre that's come from film, but so in the classic films is they're very, they're not very explained. They just have been there and they've always been out of sight. Yes, um, yeah, and I guess that out of sightness kind of reflects like a love that I've had of, always had of, um, you know, the mysteries of monsters in nature, Loch Ness monster and the yeti, and you know, these things that apparently have always been here with us that we've never seen and that we still can't see and still haven't found, but they're a part of our culture that they're just there with us. So I kind of wanted them to reflect that but, you know we just don't, we just didn't know about them, and then there they were. Um, as for a favorite monster, I. I was pretty sparing on, um, on the detail for a lot of the monsters uh, beyond kind of, I use a lot of kind of analogues of real world animals in combination, because again, I'd pref- I want the reader to really create the monster themselves rather than have it kind of handed to them on a plate.
2: Okay, so in essence, there's descriptions of the you know the features, but they they don't have a particular name, so to speak. Or no, might... I haven't.
1: Yeah, exactly. I haven't named them or given, ah, them, that's cool. given them. the kind of the classic names. They're just you know because most of the most of the stories that I guess the stories or the chapters or, or the word the terms are kind of interchangeable for the book. Um, a lot of them are told from a street level perspective. So you know, one is about a, there's a guy in a city who's just walking down the city and then a monster attacks it. And it's about his experience of, oh, my God, there's a monster in my city. What do I do? Where do I go? Um, And so he has no external information about what the monster is. He doesn't Mm -hmm. have access to the news. He doesn't have access to, you know, websites, social media, talking and discussing about it and giving, having the potential to give it names. Um, And I'd say at least 50% of the book, is from a similar kind of perspective, where someone is just experiencing it firsthand, uh, and so there's not even the ability to put it in there, and that was a deliberate choice to reduce that idea.
2: Yeah, that is a beautiful approach because it, it sort of um, it, it helps the reader to you know not come in with any preconceived notions as far as uh, you know. So that by doing that, I'm guessing the reader can discover. That this monster, as opposed to insert their already perceived, you know, insert their Godzilla into the yeah, story. Exactly, exactly. Instead, you forget your Godzilla. This is just something that this person at that time has never seen before. So what is it? Yeah. You yeah. don't know. Right. Yeah.
1: And I and because one of the big metaphors I wanted them to carry was kind of climate change, because it's a um, you know, it's a particularly interest of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I approached it from that sort of idea. You know, when we have these new natural disasters that are happening. We don't name them. We just—they're just, just there—and um, yes. we have to, you know, adapt to them and overcome them. And I wanted it to reflect that idea as well. Um, you know, and names are so connotative too. Anything that I could have given them is going to fix in a reader's mind something.
2: Yes, and mm-hmm. and it also I think by giving anything a name, whether it whether it's you know inanimate or animate, kind of implies understanding. So yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. If it's if we because if we don't understand what something is, then we're less likely to to just pop a name on it. Because but yeah, yeah like I said, by putting a name on it, it it's going to carry something with it straight away. Yeah, and, and that, that comes
1: name. back to that first point we talked about. Whereas they're where they're devoid the of intent. I mean, we they're beyond names because. You know, we, there's nothing to... We can't project any kind of rationale for them, onto them. They are just what they are. Mm. When, when
2: it comes to... You know, moving forward, do you think now the book's out? Is there room for further stories in the future? Because it sounds like the, the, the approach you've taken to write it really lends itself to you can jump in at any time. And so, is that something that you are considering, or having the works, or is we call it monster? Uh, is it is it a standalone and something that will, will stay as it is, or is it something that possibly may have some further additions coming to it? Yeah,
1: um, that's a, that's a great question because I've never really thought about following it up. Um i I have a I have a few problems with sequels and series in books. i um I have a kind of sort of semi-irrational knee-jerk dislike of them, which I don't know what it's based in. <laughs> um, I just, it just yeah, it's just like, irrational it's phobia. Yeah. yeah, it's like an irrational phobia. and you know I get that I mean I've read a few series and I've really enjoyed some series, but My all of my, you know, my mythic top 10 books and my mythic top 50 books are all pretty much standalone books. Mm -hmm. So I've never really, um, I've never really thought about following up. It does have, without giving things away, it has a reasonably open ended ending. um, And so there is, I guess, room to expand on it. And it would be kind of fun to do it because there's a lot of scope for a very different kind of story. Um, but what I would, if I was to imagine, I'd probably approach a sequel or a follow-up very differently. Um, well, I
2: was just about to say, if you do decide to, you know, keep keep it going with another book or at least, um, if you've got that phobia or or you know a dislike in general of sequels, then that could really come. Uh, become a really good guide for you to work on the sequel because if yeah. you know what you don't like then you, you can give yourself the best possible chance of putting out something that you're going to love
1: mm. no that's no that's it and, and you've given me a great idea because it's something to really think about
2: oh well, there you go but yeah, me, I, I didn't come some... up with the idea of sequels <laughs>
1: yeah, I like it so no. i'm a big fan of shared universe books more than i am of. Ah, okay books. yep um and that's it's the kind of book that would really lend itself to that
2: yeah, I think so. Definitely, if you've got uh, that ability to jump in, jump out along yes. that whole sort of landscape, that literary landscape, and I'm wondering when it came when it comes to uh, we call it monster uh, sorry, we call it monster because we're definitely going to talk about your other books shortly. No, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, um, can you tell me, or can you tell myself and our listeners, um, what was the, how was the process for you from, you know, once you'd sort of completed or pretty much close to completed to getting it published? Um, obviously it got picked up, which was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, um, how did that all come about and how did you find the
1: journey? I, I knew it would be hard to publish, um, being a pretty niche kind of book. It's a niche genre. Um, and then it's a kind of niche book within this niche genre in that, you know, it's... It, it's trying to be serious and trying to be a bit more literary than most of the giant monster fiction out there. Um, so I initially offered it to the publisher of my first book and she wasn't particularly interested, um, which is totally okay because it wasn't, it's not like what the sort of stuff that they publish. Mm-hmm. Um, and then really I, I kind of, I, was, I thought about self-publishing it because I was having a lot of trouble finding anybody that might be interested and not long after I'd kind of given it a second whip around and kind of a new i would redrafted it and kind of structured it a little bit differently and kind of you know I was tinkering with it while it was out there with the very few publishers that I thought might be interested um I just one day just did a google search out of curiosity for giant monster publishers and fiction which I probably should have done in the first place and lucked upon uh, a company called Severed Press, who are actually from Tasmania.
2: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Um, and I'd, I'd never heard of them, I knew nothing about them. Um, and I got on their website and they exclusively publish like weird genre fiction.
2: Oh, wow. And I mean, um, hey, t- t- Tasmania, if, it, if there is going to be a big monster that emerges from the sea, yep. they're heading for Australia. They're going to be the first ones to see it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um and they I mean they publish things like zombie pirate books and dinosaur time time travelers in prehistoric times fiction and all this kind of really, really niche stuff. So I sent it to them and I mean I got a reply back probably I think within 48 hours. Oh wow. And the guy said, I really like it. Um I'm happy to go with it and we'll pick it up. Um they—they they are That's crazy. That's—they yeah, definitely was, know was, what they want. Yeah, it was an incredibly quick process. Um, they've been a pretty supportive publisher. He publishes—I've just you know, blanked on his surname, which is really bad of me, but I'm sure he'll forgive me. He's named Gary, Gary something. Anyway, I'll let that go. He—he he publishes hey, Seven Press have oh, probably hundreds of titles. Um, so one of his things is he picks up a lot of fiction and just puts it out there and releases it primarily as ebooks. Mm-hmm. and you know obviously paperback copies are produced but the primary his primary focus on marketing and selling is in ebooks, which gives him this ability to just pick stuff up and get it out there mm-hmm. um, and it's great it's a great system um, and he's been really supportive and he really enjoyed the book so I was wrapped because I thought I would spend five years and write another book or two just shopping it around, trying to get some nibble of interest in this really, what I considered a weird book that I wanted to read, but I couldn't imagine many other people wanting to read. But um, I'm sure. But there, out there.
2: but there has been quite a few people reading the book. Uh, I, there's a lot of fantastic reviews. um, no, um Yeah, no, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, that's, I'm that's really, really good.
1: With, um, yeah, I'm really pleased with the response it's gotten because, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd, if I hadn't read it, I'd want to read it. But I I tend to think, you know, you'd have to be a bit of a strange oddbomb to go out and pick this giant monster book, especially because the cover is quite contradictory to kind of the content. The cover's very exploitative, which I really liked and enjoyed, because it's very striking, but it's not, it doesn't give you the impression that it would be a serious approach to the topic.
2: Mm,
1: mm. Um, But, you know, I'm really, really pleased that people are finding it to be an interesting book. Um, You know, it gives me great faith that there are, you know, readers out there who want more than just the standard sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, well, I would have thought, I I don't know, of course, you know, the the demographics out there, but I would have thought there'd be a huge audience for, you know, essentially monster stories, uh, you know, because it's they're they're such, in in a way, they're timeless, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, everybody loves a good monster movie and Mm -hmm. uh, monster books. I I mean, I probably, you know... um, uh, hey, sorry, H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, uh, you know, with these ancient ones and uh, the, yeah. the Cthulhu and all that. So that that was a uh, some some interesting you know, monster stuff that I got into uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, but yeah, I would have thought that there's that there would have to be lots of monster lovers out there, and yeah. there obviously is because they're they're grabbing your book and they're loving it.
1: Yeah, no, it is. It's very encouraging that these people are actually out there, and I guess it's just such a an underexplored genre of fiction that. Because you don't see many examples of this type of book out there, I guess for me it was just the assumption that oh, well, they're not out there because people aren't wanting to read them, whereas they're probably not out there because not many people are wanting to write them.
2: Well, and not only that, but I'm wondering if it's a case of, you know, for perhaps some people have a sort of narrow mind, and well, no, that's the wrong term, perhaps people... Are un- think that you know to write a monster story there's no room for fresh creativity do yeah, you know what i mean yeah, exactly and, right, exactly. and, but you've just proven that to be not the case at all because you've approached no. it in a whole new way that uh, sounds absolutely awesome no
1: thank you yeah
2: well congratulations on getting it published and that was severed press wasn't it
1: that was seven press yeah so that was back in that was in 2019 which um yeah i was very very i was very wrapped about um the, it's And that and, and they're an Australian publisher. I'm a big believer in Australian small press. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got a really good small press industry out there that do the best they can in kind of trying circumstances for publishers and that it ended up because it is a, it is a very distinctly Australian book as well. Um, and so to have that Australian support behind it, I've found very, very encouraging and just very refreshing.
2: And and that does um, raise a quick question I wanted to ask because the we call it monster is it primarily set in Australia or is Australia just feature heavily and it's set on a yeah. global scale? Well, there's,
1: it's a part, There's a there's a there's a very odd chapter which is and this is going to sound a little bit wacky. Uh, it's the kind of book it is. There's I a love book, wacky. There's a very short chapter that's told from a, the perspective of a satellite in space.
2: Ah, that's cool.
1: Um, and that gives this kind of global overview of what's happening around the world. But apart from that particular chapter, everything, the rest of the book is set in Australia.
2: Oh, there you go. That's, uh, it's definitely got to be the tipping point for most people to run out now listening to this podcast to go get a copy.
1: Well, I, I hope uh, so. I hope so because, um, yeah, and, you know, it's the, the thing I tried to do too was to sneak in, most of the major most of the capitals around the country. So it's not just a Melbourne specific book or a Sydney specific book or an Adelaide specific book, but you could kind of appreciate it no matter where you are in Australia. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it plays with a lot of, you know, stereotypically and recognisable Australian environments without too much specificity. So, you know, Australia's capitals are almost exclusively uh, built on on the ocean, or built on the beachfront, or by the sea, I suppose. Um, and so, a lot of the cities, while they're recognisably Australian, I haven't, you know, there's no art centre or Sydney Harbour Bridge in most of these kind of chapters.
2: Ah, oh, okay, yeah. Um,
1: same with, you know, uh, the chapters that are set in the regions, apart from a couple which are by necessity set in specific places. It's a recognisable version of the bush or the desert or the forests and the jungles of, you know, kind of up north without trying to push in too many place names so that, you know, any Australian reader can kind of see this through their local knowledge and their, you know, their kind of learned knowledge of what Australia is like as a whole.
2: That's cool, and and I don't want an answer because I am obviously organising to get a copy of this book as soon as we finish. Um, but I do hope there's at least one or two pages there where certain buildings in Canberra get smashed by um, uh, completely no, non no, non political monsters.
1: Yeah, no, I've, 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 uh, I can't remember. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll find I'll, out I'll, and I'll I'll remind either. you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it, and it must be a hell of a lot of fun to do. So. Oh, it was, it was, it was amazing. It was an
1: amazing thing to write. I just enjoyed. I, you know, I'm. I, I struggle sometimes to get my stories out, but that just it just flowed. You know, I mean, some days it flowed less readily than others, but that's writing, isn't it? Every minute of writing it, um, and coming up, trying to come up with a new. You know, okay, what's a new twist on what could have happened? And yeah, there wasn't a day that I didn't actually enjoy writing it.
2: Yeah, uh, that's that's just yeah. Now it's amazing, and for all our that's called we call it monster. Now, Lachlan, I wanted to go a little bit more well, not a little bit more serious, but uh, to to maintain perhaps the serious. Um, t- Elements of, of your writing and talk to you about your other book. And but starting with the fact that now I understand you completed a PhD and yes. that was uh, critically and creatively exploring the relationship between Australian post apocalyptic fiction and Australian notions of national identity. Yeah. Now, what a firecracker of a research project or thesis! <laughs> um,
1: yeah.
2: uh, and I, look, I, I love well, I do love post-apocalyptic landscapes and scenarios. And, you know, especially as being an Aussie, I've grown up with, as most people would have, a vision of the Outback as, as kind of a post-apocalyptic reality lying in wait. Yes, you know?
1: exactly. Uh,
2: exactly yep. Yeah. But now, the last, I, I, look, I, I'd say the last two years, but perhaps a little bit more, more weight to the last year, especially with the pandemic, I'm actually starting to believe that, if the world did turn upside down, if there was some sort of, sort of natural or a human created disaster that here in Australia, we might actually, instead of becoming like that, desolation and, and yeah. post-apocalyptic. So we might actually become a new centre for culture and for science and, and a new, I, I guess, population identity. And, and I, I'm thinking that due to, I guess, our isolation as a nation, yeah, uh, exactly. which means isolation from any, you know, problems out there and, and the potential ability to intake so many survivors of whatever yeah. might, might you know, cause the, uh, the big upset across the globe. So... Well, that's my little bit of thinking, but got yeah,
1: no, no, absolutely, yeah,
2: yeah. So, what, but what I'd like to begin with is uh, before we get into the 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 book, which obviously I'm leading up to, which is called "The Rain Never Came," I'd love to learn a little bit more about what drew you to this particular research, yeah, and what you anticipated the relationship to be as far as between Australian post-apocalyptic fiction and the Australian notions of identity, national identity, and what we actual findings were.
1: So, yeah, so I. I approached doing this PhD, um, I just kind of lucked into doing a PhD. Oh,
2: how did um, that happen? Sorry. How, how do you just luck into a PhD? Um, it takes well, a lot of work. Yeah, it does take a lot of
1: work. Yeah. Um, so I, I returned to uni when I was about 29. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'd started, I'd gone to uni as soon as I finished high school. And I flopped through a couple of, couple of years and didn't get much out of it. Didn't enjoy myself much, and ended up just dropping out. Um, in my late twenties, I was a bit bored with my life and a little bit stuck with what I was doing. And I thought, okay, I'll I'll go back to uni and I'll I'll see what it's like now because you know I'd like to have accomplished it and finished it and ticked that box. Um, and I found going as an older Older man, I don't know, that sounds like really weird when you're a mature student. A, <laughs> mature student, a mature student, right, a mature student, um, returning as a mature student. I, I love university. Um, you know, I actually found it really stimulating. I found the discussion really fascinating. Um, and I worked really hard because I was really, I was really committed. Um, and I got, I got some good marks that were good enough to get me, that opened up honors for me to do. Mm-hmm. I did Otters, well really good marks in Otters because again, it was a fascinating process and that was all self-directed um, learning and I've always been a very self-directed person and I took a year off after Otters and about halfway through that year off, one of my old teachers emailed me and said, oh, they're opening up candidate candidature, have you ever thought about doing this? Have you ever thought about doing a PhD and I said, oh, no. Um, but. It would be interesting, you know. Would mind calling myself a doctor? Absolutely. (laughs) So I applied and um, I got in, which was a bit of a surprise. Um, And I had very little idea about what I wanted to do, except that I had a fascination—I've always had a fascination—with Australian post-apocalyptic fiction. Um, I applied to do my PhD as a creative PhD, which you could do at my university. Mm-hmm. Which involved writing, you'd write a book and then you'd write and a very big essay about the themes of your book or the kind of literary criticism stuff that your book would be touching upon in its kind of subtext or in its um, or in its narratives. And so I'd, I'd had this idea for a novel, and I was fascinated by this particular topic. And so I just kind of said, I want to do it on this and i don't really know what i'm doing i don't really know what i'm talking about yet but i'm you know i still want to do it and they said oh well this is what most people do they have an idea and then they start and then they narrow that idea and turn it into an actual topic of study and specificity so when i began all i wanted to look at was what makes australian post-apocalyptic fiction different from post-apocalyptic fiction around the world Mm -hmm. um And, you know, after about a year of study, when I did a good amount of work on my book, I realised, okay, this topic is too big for the limited word space I have for my exegesis, which is the the, the fancy, silly academic name for the um, critical part of the essay. And so I had to kind of, I'd committed to this idea and the book was about this, and it was still something I was interested in. So I had to kind of think more heavily about what is Australian post-apocalyptic fiction, where has it come from and is it informed by Australian history and what we've kind of, what we've lived through as a culture and what we've, you know, especially white Australia, what white Australia has, its attitude to the land and where it's been. And so that progressed and progressed until I, you know, Started realizing that the book that I was writing was a death, was about male friendships mm-hmm. and community. And I guess it became, for want of a better word, it became about mateship, um, which is such a classic Australian kind of stereotypical personality trait that I investigated where did this notion come from. And I found this odd relationship between these kind of classic Australianisms and classically stereotypical personality traits that we exhibit and our relationship to the land. And this kind of all coalesced into this final topic.
2: And so when you first began the approach, if somebody said, Hey, Lachlan, what do you, you know, how would you describe your idea of post-apocalyptic uh landscape in australia like it, like an australian post-apocalyptic landscape that's always a mouthful that one yeah, no, um, that so one, yeah. what what was it uh what was your sort of your typical idea back then and has that changed since you're doing your research
1: um yeah it has it has a little bit it, it, initially it was you know to to be probably i'm, I'm going to be a little bit reductive about it here but my um initial thing was mad max it's hot it's dry um, I think you're well, definitely not on your own there. Yeah, no, exactly, because that's that's where that's where our point of view is. You know, that's what's pushed our perspective as Australians, isn't it? It's this dry desert landscape um, and quite this kind of brutal existence in a brutal environment. Um, as I read more and explored more Australian post-apocalyptic fiction and learnt more about. You know what? How we've perceived the land historically—it um, shifted a bit to becoming this kind of there's an, there's an almost ambivalence about Australia's relate you know and like especially white Australians' relationship with the land, where it's both something to behold and it's beautiful, but it's also terrifying. Mm. So I guess that um, whereas my initial in my initial thought based again on, you know, this kind of Mad Maxian, you know, framework was that, you know, it's just terrifying and it's just brutal, is that it changed to that kind of ambivalence where there's a certain aspect of we, we are irrelevant to the land. And that's both what gives it its beauty and what gives it its brutality is that you know, we're, we're very like, you know, Australia is a very untouched country in so many ways, and the land has a feeling of timelessness to it. And our own individual perspectives are what make that either brutal or beautiful. Not, there's nothing in and of itself that leads it to be either way.
2: Mm, mm. and it's funny isn't it because you did mention you know obviously we settle as far as our cities are concerned usually pretty close to the coast um unlike say you know a a lot of european countries or the united states or, or you know Japan, place like that, where if you jump in the car and drive for say four or five hours, you're yeah. probably, you probably you're most likely still in cities. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Whereas here, you know, you drive for four or five hours, or even for an hour or two, from yeah. most cities, and it, it pretty quickly, uh, civilization starts to drop away yeah exactly. so, exactly. And I, so I think that makes it easy for us to as, as you know without calling it a cliche i think most of us have that preconceived notion of what would a post-apocalyptic australia look like it's that that outback that dry exactly as, yeah. because it's almost as if if we lose the comfort and um you know th- sort of the, the modern benefits of a city that's what's waiting for us Exactly. And, and exactly. As, it's kind of their sort of taunting going well you yeah. know it, can you survive out here yeah, uh, you know yeah, come yeah. on out have a try no water yeah, exactly. or when you you know if you're driving from melbourne to sydney or sydney to you know queensland you're going to hit some point where you're like hmm can i survive out here yeah
1: uh so it's, yeah, it's yeah, quite, exactly exactly quite, and know. it's like that um that end of the world or that post-fucked landscape is already here
2: that's right yeah yeah so it's just sitting there waiting going hmm you'll have to deal with me eventually you know if the cities break down this is what you're going to have to learn to deal with which is that um that that fear, I guess, that we all can have, you know, if we're not familiar with the land, if we're not familiar with how to live out there. But but I'm wondering, before we jump further down that rabbit hole, can you maybe uh, tell our listeners a little bit about that, that your novel, The Rain Never Came, and what inspired the uh, story behind that? So The Rain Never
1: Came is a story of a drought-stricken future Australia. Um, it's, it's meant as the drought in the book is meant as kind of a continuation of the millennium drought that we were experiencing down through, you know, the whole southeast of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just taken that drought as rather than it broke, it just kept going, going, and going, and going, um, and it became such an issue that uh, the government of—it's an unnamed government. I didn't want real, really, I didn't really want politics to become to come into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To make it basically a political novel, so effectively, governments of the world, of Australia have declared most of this most of the southeast of the country a disaster zone, and have enforced an evacuation of, you know, it's not really specified in the book, but Victoria, most of New South Wales, fair chunk of South Australia, uh, and these people for their own good because the land is unable to sustain them in the way that the population has become accustomed to being sustained. They've been shipped up to what I call the line, which is I've appropriated that old phrase, the Brisbane line. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it from Australian history.
2: No, no. Yeah. I definitely like you to illuminate me yet. No, I haven't.
1: So the Brisbane line was, um, it was coined by, I think it was coined by Curtin during the second world war. And he basically drew a line across Australia from Brisbane and he said, okay, so if uh, the Axis invade, they could have everything down to that line. Oh, okay. We'll we'll defend that. So we'll, we'll lose Darwin and we'll lose Cairns, but they're not getting any further south than Brisbane um, and across that parallel. So I've, I've kind of reversed that and I've said, okay, so to keep everybody alive, we've sent them to the above the line, above Brisbane. Up into the tropics and the semi-tropics of Northern Queensland, Northern Northern Territory, Northern Western Australia, where, you know, we our in my imaginary extrapolation of this incredible drought is would be one of the last areas to be touched. Mm-hmm. Um, Which makes so that's sense. The totally. That's the framework of the book, basically. Right. And the story concerns two old friends who are, you know, their lifelong best mates who still live in their tiny little town in Victoria, along with the, you know, dozen or so other holdouts who are refusing to be evacuated. Um, and the kind of the countryside and, you know, this, the rest of the southeast of Australia is populated by little towns like this where you do have half a dozen people refusing or an old farmer who doesn't want to leave his home. Um, and then the kind of plot motion sets in a gear where they face a challenge to their life in this dry, you know, half horse town and are forced to react, which kicks off the book and then book stuff happens. They go on adventures and not, not ventures. They, they go on, they do things.
2: M- missions. <laughs> missions. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Narratives happen and plot things and, you know, and it expands on from there, basically, you know, how, you know, they might be stubborn, you know, stubborn bastards for one of a better word who are holding on. But how long can they actually hold on in their particular ways of being? And is it is it feasible for people to live like this?
2: Mm. Yeah, it is. It is a uh, fascinating sort of topic, really. And and I know, obviously, we were talking just before uh, recording this podcast and I, chatting about the fact that I'll just come back from the bush, uh, disappeared for two days, um, and out there. Although it's quite close to a river, but but the actual property itself is is quite dry, um, uh, even in winter. It's you know, but winter it's okay. It's not, but to be out there when it's forty eight degrees and yeah. you've got no water, it is, it is very daunting. Prospect yeah. absolutely. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And and the reality is, it's you know that sort of scenario that you're chatting about. It's not so far fetched. It's just oh, well, that's- it's something that's so easy to go. Okay, that, that could happen.
1: Yeah. So to give, to give you a bit of a context for that kind of thing, for the book, um, the book is the rain never came is it's set in a town called Newstead, which is um, it's a town in central Victoria. It's about two hours North of Melbourne. And it's, it's basically if you were to put a dart in the middle of a map of Victoria, that's where Newstead is. Okay. Um, So it's a real town. It's my, it's actually my hometown. So I grew up there um, and I, my family is still up there and I have some property up there and I've, lived i've shifted between melbourne and newstead numerous times over my adult life one of the times that i found myself living there was actually during the millennium drought and it was a town where it didn't rain at that point when i was living there. it didn't rain in newstead for over four months mm-hmm. uh, we didn't get any rain. the river that runs through the middle of the town completely dried up far out um, all the creeks around dried up we were having you know farmers were Moving their cattle to you know towns 100k's away because there was just nothing to feed them, and I was living there and I thought, well, God, this is this is actually this is the end of the world. You know, this is what what it would feel like. There was a desperation in the way people were behaving. There was a kind of grim stoicism that hung around in people too, where they were just, ah, oh, it's going to rain next. But you know-
2: mm, Okay, that's an interesting point.
1: Yeah, this kind of classic Australian, she'll be right, we'll cope. Um, so there were all these kind of different attitudes around and this incredible environment where it actually felt like it would never rain again. And uh, you know, you, where, you don't know where where the next bit of water is going to come from. Well, and it, it just- comes, does... Sorry? I
2: was just going to say, just go to show how much we take for granted uh, that things will uh, continue, you know, like, so we'll, we just take for granted that it's going to rain at some point.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah.
2: Uh, Which is probably the wrong approach, isn't it? Especially yeah. with climate change playing such a, you know, big yeah. role in, in conversations today.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the way, I mean, and this is kind of what inspired the because the day that it did rain and it was an amazing shift in people, people were literally out in the middle of the street in their underwear arms out in the Jesus pose, just kind of standing under the rain with this celebratory thing. And it felt like, it felt like a scene in a movie. It was this spontaneous gesture. Um, but it, you know, it was this whole thing of, oh my God, I can't believe it's actually happened.
2: Wow. Well, but I think I have been in similar circumstances, uh, like out in remote places that when rains come after a long, long period with no rain and it's just I think you know going circling right back to it when we were just chatting right at the start talking about priorities and some of the best things in life don't come with a price tag and you know you know that that feeling of rain when there when you've been somewhere where there's been no rain for such a long yeah. time it's this enormous gift isn't it and it's yes, sort of, exactly right and this and it's this humbling sense of insignificance at the same time because you realize that you know that 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 water falling from the sky is is not just a gift but it is the only reason you're still alive
1: yeah exactly yeah so exactly. it's, it's yeah. A very
2: you know to stand there in the rage like i said in, in that jesus christ pose um it's it's a special moment to, to yeah, be able exactly, to enjoy
1: and it's, and it's a moment that puts everything in perspective yes yeah absolutely um, you, know, you you realize that this is all that matters
2: when it comes to uh, you know th- that the relationship you were talking about uh, as far as our national identity and yeah. that of australian post-apocalyptic uh, it's going to be my tongue hard twister hard for hard a sunday <laughs> post yeah. Yeah. Um, Post-apocalyptic. our pa fiction yes. <laughs> um, uh, but I-, I was wondering for your, uh, your 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 view so at the moment you know it, we are more than a year into the pandemic and you yourself, you know, being in Victoria have have experienced a lot more of the hardships than say what I have as far as, you know, the lockdowns, the restrictions yeah. and, and that uncertainty moving forward. But I was wondering being that post-apocalyptic fiction is something that you researched and obviously have pondered about quite a lot. Yep. Do you think that at this point in time, are we beginning to have to adjust to what I'm thinking of as micro post-apocalyptic yeah. slash dystopian scenarios yeah
1: that's a, that's a great that's a great term for it that's a great point because basically we are you know we are living right now i mean especially you know if you're especially like say if you're in melbourne but if, even if you know some people that have been living through lockdowns are happening in the uk and some of the more extreme lockdowns around the world um it is a type of apocalypse you know, even if it's not the end of a world, it's definitely the end of a way of being.
2: Oh, absolutely! I mean, the death toll is, is astronomical, and that's not to say all deaths aren't astronomically, yeah. you know, sad in any way. But it's obviously had a big impact on on the globe, and but. You know, because we've always assumed the post-apocalyptic environment or or speaking as a rough little cliche Australian, is that dusty outback? Is that (laughs) Mad Max style? Um, And yet here it is creeping in. But is the post-apocalyptic landscape actually something that is Digital in base, in the sense yeah, yeah, of, you know, we suddenly we have to scan everywhere we're going. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll that's, be divided between the vaccinated, the non-vaccinated, which will give you, you know, vaccinated people the right to do one thing and not So it's a, yeah. are we slipping into a whole scenario that perhaps none of us saw coming?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think you might be onto something there because, you know, and, and again, as we were sort of saying earlier, even this divide between going to work and working from home is a is a it's a type of cultural shift that you know only happens in a populace. well you to
2: know? a certain degree yeah um you, you're going to return to home or at least somewhere you feel safe yeah. and uh you know the idea of stepping back out into society you have to essentially trust society and that's where I think it's ir- not ironic, but I think it's it's interesting to see the government sort, of, sorry, the current sort of murmurings about how the government's trying to find ways of re inspiring people to go back to work, yeah. especially in the cities, obviously where uh, a lot of businesses in the cities are, are suffering because of that lack of population in the cities. Yeah. Whereas I've been reading a little bit on the other side of the coin, and that is people are saying, well, I can get the work done from home, but not only that, it gives me less travel time, which means more time with family, et cetera, which means balancing of priorities, but also the ability to choose where their money goes in their society. Yeah. And exactly. so they can support that that local cafe down the road yep. and uh, and get the coffee there, as opposed to being forced to choose but it's something that they, you know, by necessity. Because yeah. they haven't got time to do anything, else, which is very interesting. And perhaps there's that sense of hope coming in that you also mentioned before, because yeah, no, there's absolutely. a, you know, post apocalyptic scenarios uh, don't usually come with a great deal of hope, especially when there can be a little bit confusing. Like at the moment, perhaps the digital elements coming yeah. in, but the fact that people are saying, well, I want to have more of an interaction with my immediate um, community. Yeah, uh, exactly. A, as opposed to be, have to commute to the central hub where everything can be so clinical, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so there is a sense of hope is there also have
1: in that hope, in that kind of sense of hope, you also have, you know, there's an, there's an environmental change, which is really necessary. Like we haven't just seen it in, you know, airlines shutting down and cities becoming quieter and this sort of thing, but the decentralization, especially in a city like Australia, where people realize that if they can work from home, they don't need to live in a city or a suburb
2: yes that's a very good point absolutely
1: but you're working remotely you can live three hours from your workplace and then suddenly you know what we need which is to not have every resource poured into a city and neglecting the regions but it's actually a distribution of resources yeah more fairly and more equitably and the reinvigorations of communities, because anyone who's ever lived in a country town knows, you know, community is more, is the emphasis is bigger there and is easier to accomplish than it is in a city or a suburb. Um, and this is something that, you know, actually benefits our way of life.
2: Yeah, and it's such a good point uh, that you raised about like the small towns and, and that sense of community. So. You obviously come from a, a town. You said you're, you're you're a country boy in the city, yeah. and yeah. sometimes a city boy going back to the country. Yeah. Uh, you've done a PhD in post-apocalyptic fiction. You've written stories about monsters and a, a, a book about you know the, the a, a landscape, a potential landscape in Australia where there's just literally no rain. And not only that, you're also I understand somebody who has a great love of. Um, nurseries and plants and and the the wonders of uh things that you know yeah. little no well
1: it's um it's it, I, I don't know whether to say i don't know if it's right to say that it's a, it's a reasonably unusual job for a writer um i don't i know a fair few other writers not many that do a job like mine um i find there's a real there's a typical correlation between a lot of writers where they work in very more more intellectual jobs as their day job um, so as academics, teachers, um, copywriters and this sort of thing, I, I, I have, I have itchy feet. I like to be on my feet and I like to be outside in the open air. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm with you. Yeah. It's a, it's a thing, right? You want to, you want to have the sun on you and you want to, you know, if you're going to sit down to write all day long, why would you want to sit down and write for your crust? It's just something I don't—I've never understood about people, and it's just—it's just where my head's at. And it's what I like. So I became a nursery person when I started being a writer because I wanted something that would push my body and give me the freedom to not be a kind of sedentary dude. Um, I don't exercise. I don't—you know—I don't like exercising. It's not for me. So I needed something so I didn't just blob out on a couch in front of a computer all day long, and playing with plants and being the sun just made it was seems like the most normal thing to do
2: oh look i think you know hand on heart i i'd I'd be the first to admit that Say, you know in my teens and early 20s you know plant life and and that whole concept of um you know crops gardening and and just uh wasn't on the forefront of my you know my to-do list you know i was obviously more interested in music and writing and all all those crazy stuff. but the last probably 10, 15 years, I suppose, or the last 10 years, it, I've really gained an appreciation of plant life and, yeah. and just realising, you know, now you just said, I oh, will maybe writers are more intellectual, but there's nothing, equal, or should I say, you know, anything to do with plants is equally important you know, uh, yeah. intellectual, I guess, for want of a better word, because there's, it's such a fascinating idea of this, this soil being this factory and, and this yeah, soft exactly. software you know? coming in and, you yeah. know, and creating all these nutrients. It's just mind-blowing. Yeah. But I would say I'd have to think that being able to do that on a day-by-day basis, being surrounded by you know, this positive energy, this, this, you know, energy yeah. coming up through the earth, yeah. reaching out to the sun, this green, um, it's got to be great for your state of mind, especially yes. in today's environment. Yeah. But it's I'm wondering a, what's an
1: amazing that... thing. And it also just lets your brain turn off to a degree and just be in nature. And it's a, uh, it becomes a bit of a, your, your mind becomes a bit of a, you know, a, a machine for new ideas and new turns in stories um you're not thinking in language so much but you're thinking about you know what does a plant need how does it thrive how does it survive uh how do i maintain it and that's all kind of it's all touch and it's all instinct based and so
2: and not to mention your by this very nature of the role, you probably more in, uh, f- find yourself more in tune with the weather because yeah, obviously the help. weather's playing a massive role yeah. as opposed to, you know, when I'm working on the computer, which I'm doing a lot, yeah. it, could, it could be snowing, it could be 50 degrees. It doesn't yeah. really have an effect on me as far as, uh, yeah. yeah. But, I, but I'm just wondering with all these worlds to draw from and looking with you moving forward, to bring it back to you, talking about how you like to, you know, carry with you a sense of hope. Looking at Australia moving forward, looking at the world moving forward, do you do you still have a strong sense of hope, or are you sort of wait and see as yeah. far as, as as a human race? Um, yeah. You know, or do you or do you think it's time the monsters do come and give us a bit of a shake up?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm torn um, because on one hand I do think it's time that the monsters came and gave us a shake up. I mean we. You know we've we've it's it's proven that you know our old ways of living and being aren't that sustainable, um, for us. And I'm you know, I've I, as you as you described me earlier, I'm a cynical optimist or an optimistic cynic, <laughs> I suppose. So I'd like to think that you know we will actually, um, you know, we will shift on our own accord. Um, uh, but I also think that to a degree we need to have change often forced upon us and that's something that that obviously COVID has done um is that you know we wouldn't have necessarily chosen to go into this new transitional lifestyle of lockdowns and divides and working from home and suddenly communities and is a re-emphasized and friendship and family is re-emphasized we might not have necessarily chosen that if this hadn't happened and so in that Instance, this has been a good thing for us, but at the same time, it's been a horror story for so many people. All not just the people that have, you know, unfortunately died, but all the knock-on effects of their families and their friends, and you know. So, I would like us to. The optimist says we should learn from this and use this as the unfortunate instigator of massive change for the way we can be, so that life can be better for everybody and everything, um, I just, I'm just, my jury is out on whether that's actually going to happen.
2: Yes, it's, um, I think it's definitely a case of wait and see. I think it's, if we can come, if we can come to a point where priorities do get put under the magnifying glass, which I think they are to a certain degree. And, you know, we, we sort of start to emerge in this new world, which we are going to have to eventually, and it is going to be a new world with any freedoms from the past are going to be gone or, or should I say the general carefree, Uh, lifestyle of the past is going to be you know probably uh, a memory for for most of us moving forward but that that reshifting of priorities um at some point we all have to look into ourselves and think okay what is it we're saving when we do the lockdown what is it we're protecting is it are we protecting my ability to you know do the grind every day, commute for an hour and a half, two hours a day, or or are we protecting the life of, you know, being able to spend time with family and being to spend yeah. time with friends. And, you know, one of those is not like the other. And so it's eventually we have to ask ourselves, what are we protecting? Uh, is it? economy or is it the you know the, the chance to live and prioritize those things that we care about so but yeah. I'm definitely with you I might just wait and see and we'll just see how we go Yeah, exactly. uh, you yeah. know I'm still terrified of the toilet paper people so yeah, well, I'm terrified <laughs> they're life still life. out there to
1: toilet paper people. why yeah,
2: they're still out there and yeah. they they're the real monsters they, yeah. we don't know who they it. are what no. they look like but they're waiting lying in wait yeah. <laughs> but Lachlan, it has been absolutely awesome talk to you. I just wondered... thank myself if, so much.
1: Thank you, Darren.
2: Yeah, no, absolute pleasure. I was wondering if you could just take a couple of moments and maybe, you know, to, to our listeners out there that are either interested in monsters or, you know, perhaps wanting to explore that that uh, landscape that you've created in The Rain Never Comes and, and the, the, the mysteries of what happens when, in, you know, when we divide Australia like that. Perhaps, uh, have you got a little something you can... Uh, a reason for people to go and get your books. What If, the, if right. you have to stand on the corner street and tell them why. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Look... Do you love Australian stories and do you love Australian voices? Because that's what I want to do. I want to make you love Australian voices and Australian stories and see our country through my eyes or in a different way. I just go and buy my books.
2: That is an awesome sales pitch.
1: And you know what? It's a terrible sales pitch, but it'll do.
2: But, but absolutely, and look, to our listeners out there, when was the last time you had the opportunity to grab a monster book set in Australia?
1: Well, that's, you know? yeah, that, that's, hopefully that's a selling point all on its own. Because, yeah, I think it's yeah, going to be. Our, um, our, our land is great and our monsters could be even greater.
2: Yep, and uh, well, as soon as we're finishing this recording, I'll be organising to purchase a copy. So I'm definitely, you've sold me. uh, Thank you, I am definitely, I'm definitely going to, I'm definitely interested to see how Monsters in Australia come together. But again, Lachlan, it has been fantastic talking with you and I thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks
1: for Thanks, people, for listening. I really appreciate it.
2: All I can say is let's just hope, you know, good or bad, that uh, the one thing that isn't taken away from us is our ability to look into ourselves and, uh, you know, cherish or at least identify those things that are really the most important thing. And uh, so coming back to what you said that you'd love to do, live that awesome free life. And Lachlan, it's been an inspiration talk with you. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much, Darren. Appreciate it.
0: So you both covered so many things, you and Lachlan, monsters and then Australian dystopia and... Uh, a blokes relationship, should I say, or not not quite bromance, but, you know, talking about relationships with Mateship. Twin. Mateship, sorry, Yay. I forgot the word. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> uh, but I want to jump straight into quotes, so let's start with one from Frederick Nietzsche. So, Nietzsche was a German philosopher. Uh, oh,
2: don't tell me you, we've
0: got the same one.
2: Yeah, but it's, it's a good one. So let, um, I'm assuming we do because I love it. There's it's so much. But I'll let, Yeah, please go ahead. Let's Just see if we do because he did say a lot with of things. Whoever,
0: about yeah, okay. whoever <laughs> fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. And if he gaze long enough into an abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you.
2: Yes. just uh, Look, I think it's one of the most famous quotes around, really, isn't yeah. it? There's not many yeah. people that haven't heard it or re- at least recognised aspects of it. Yeah. And not only that, would would I can't imagine many people that would disagree with something like that.
0: No, no, absolutely. All right, we skip on over that one. I'll give you my next one. <gasps> Please do. Or do you want to go into, yeah, I'll give my next one because then you can save up and bring us... Well, that's one. a,
2: a two-for-one, so that's we, we two both picked that one. So, yeah. I'll get so three next week.
0: You get you can get three
2: next week, yeah. Yay! So
0: I, I thought I'd just move away from, you know, monsters a little bit and think about the realities because you guys talked a little bit about, um, you know, interpretation of realities and those kind of things. This is from Jane Wagner, and Jane is an American writer, and she was a collaborator and she's in fact the wife of lily tomlin so she's a comedy writer but i love this quote which is reality is the leading cause of stress amongst those in touch with it
2: oh yes <laughs> that that is a doozy
0: <laughs> so I thought, yeah there's a nice little sting in the tail the leading cause of stress amongst those in touch with it yeah
2: yeah in other words, uh yeah, if, if yeah. your eyes are open and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. naturally
0: enough, reality is stressful. All right. what do you got yeah. for us?
2: All right, so I've got one from uh, a, a V. E. Schwab. Ah and, yes uh, yeah, yeah she wrote so this
0: great Spec fig,
2: yep yeah, so uh, I really like this one, but it says um but these words people threw around humans, monsters, heroes, villains, to Victor, it was all just a matter of semantics. Someone could call themselves a hero and still walk around killing dozens. Someone else could be labelled a villain for trying to stop them. Plenty of humans were monstrous, and plenty of monsters knew how to play at being human. Hmm. So I do like that. And it really comes down to, yeah, I guess intent. I don't know. Yeah, that's a a good one because, you know, yeah, the the whole idea that humans can be... I think humans are the scariest monster of all, myself. Yes. uh, You know, personally. And... uh, Yeah. I think one of the quotes, uh, one of the lyrics for a song that I, that I loved from so long ago was, uh, kill a man, you're a murderer, kill many, you're a conqueror, kill them all, you're a god. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. Now there's a quote. Yeah. Although, it's, yeah. It's a, I suppose, yeah, technically a quote. Yeah. Uh, but, it, but it is, isn't it? Um, it's just, yeah. What One person. I mean, who defines what it is to be monstrous as far as mm. a human being? Mm-hmm. Is, a, is a soldier being monstrous? Um, you know, that's all. It, it's, it's a murky. Yeah, the boundaries thin red line. are
0: always shifting, aren't they? They are grey, and you know they're black and white until they're grey, is what yeah. I always kind of think. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, and so which I think is the beautiful thing about monsters and about literature, because at the end of the day, it's it gives us all opportunities to look deep within ourselves and face those things, fears, or learn learn those aspects about ourselves that maybe we wouldn't have delved into were it not for books like for example we, we call a monster or or frankenstein or any of those books that ask us to delve into the darker aspects of what it is to be a human being yeah and uh what you know what are those things in reality which is obviously uh, an unavoidable source of stress mm. what things in reality uh, could push us to a point of being monstrous ourselves Yes. Uh, you know, and uh, how do we, and if we can identify that, then we can avoid it. So then maybe, as you mentioned earlier, monsters can be an omen or a, a warning sign, a, a, a lighthouse in a storm of potential monstroseness. I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> monstrousness? <laughs> monstrousness? Yes. <laughs> well, let's just we say dark evil doings. Yeah, <laughs> so. dark evil doings.
0: Well, that has been an amazing way to start 2022 with lots of discussions on monsters Uh, perhaps not quite necessarily following my goal for this year which is to embrace the small joys but I am going to say that it has been joys as always chatting with you Darren about all things writing.
2: A hundred percent. And I think <laughs> there's a beautiful little bit of joy to be had talking about fun monsters, because yes. monsters don't always have to be scary. No, uh, no, for- and especially
0: when it's daytime and it's beautiful sunshine out here at the moment, so the only monsters are the little doggies that I've got at my house who are horrified that I've put them out. While we're recording, so they'll yeah, be monstrous when they and
2: come if back. F- and if you feel reality's been too stressful, you, you can always remember there is such thing as the Cookie Monster as yeah. well. Well, <laughs> And Cookie <laughs> Monster was always in a good mood, always hungry, but yes. always in a good mood. Yes, <laughs> so, absolutely. No, it's been fantastic. And... Uh, Yeah, um, awesome, fun recording, our first one for the year. Yes. I feel like it's a miracle. I haven't had uh, too many coughs, of course, (laughs) for for our listeners out there. I'm actually in isolation at the moment with possible Mm. COVID-19. Knock on wood, this is as bad as it gets, but I'll probably go on a bit of a coughing fit when I hit stop on the recording. Uh, All right, well, hold
0: your breath then for the final goodbye, and I'll say to our listeners that if you love uh, what you heard, please follow us on any of our social media or certainly on the podcast platforms. and leave us some stars and leave us a review you can email us via the website Uh, authors can send us their books via the website and on social media we are on facebook and instagram at australian book lovers and on twitter we are at australian books you'll also find us on youtube and linkedin so no excuses peeps for not being able to find us Uh, that's about all i need to say for the Episode number forty-two, except that is, of course, as we mentioned, a great number.
2: Yes, it is. Uh, well, I'm not sure if we got to the the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. <laughs> However, in the chaos that is the first two weeks of January, along comes a podcast. So it's it things are possible. The yes, be- beginnings do have a, you know the beginnings can begin, yep. and so I love beginning for the new year. Regardless of trials, tribulations, challenges and all that falls in between as we move forward, beautiful things can happen. Uh, It's a magnificent opportunity to do these recordings, to chat with great authors, to chat with you, Veronica. And, you know, just to know that we can uh, at this stage move forward and and do them again makes uh, whatever insanity there is beyond the window. It's it's okay because this this is the good part. Small
0: joys, indeed. And
2: and how are we going to uh, do our tagline this week?
0: Well, I don't know. You might have to do some monstrous stuff and perhaps we're running, screaming from the monsters. Or would we be stay and fight kind of Hmm, people? Good question. Good
2: question. Definitely stay and fight. Um, Hmm. Or should we become monsters ourselves?
0: Oh, well, you could turn our voices
2: into monsters. So
0: we'll just go... Tagline and leave you to interpret it via your fabulous editing skills.
2: We shall indeed. We'll see if the abyss stares back to us. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> all right. So, listeners, take care for now and remember to...
2: Read, read, read more Aussie books. Awesome. Awesome. Take care, everybody.
0: Bye for now. Let's meet again. magic happens. Australian Book Lovers acknowledges First Nations peoples and recognises their continuous connection to country, community and to culture. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and honour the sharing of traditional stories passed down through generations. We're committed to a safe and inclusive welcome for authors and readers of all cultures and backgrounds, including people of LGBTQIA communities and their families.